Good afternoon. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News, podcasting from Northern California. Today I'm going to talk about central hypothyroidism, and this is hypothyroidism that results as a consequence of central disease, namely hypothalamic pituitary infundibulum, otherwise known as the stalk or pituitary disease. This is most often due to the usual disease processes that affect the hypothalamic pituitary unit. And I won't belabor the points there about the different causes, but uh, the most common in our practice would be pituitary adenomas, craniopharyngiomas, uh, paracellar radiation, uh, and even head trauma. Um, there is a an entity that I like to think of as isolated central hypothyroidism. Uh, there is a lot in the literature about this, especially the literature of days gone by. Um, <clears throat> I've seen a few patients who seem to have this particular disorder and treat them with thyroxin. They usually have normal anatomy of the hypothalamic pituitary unit and no specific uh, other hormone deficiencies. They're rare. Who knows what's going on with these patients? There may be a gene or something uh, that describes this finding in these patients that I'm not aware of, but uh, understand that you will likely see that at some point in your career as well. Clearly, those patients need to be differentiated from those who have subclinical hyperthyroidism, and looking at your T4, T3, and TSH combinations uh, is the way to sort of differentiate between subclinical hyperthyroidism and, and isolated central hypothyroidism. We'll talk more about that later. One of the things that you'll notice if you see enough of these patients is that in most cases the TSH level is normal, but the patient is hypothyroid. In fact, that's the case about 80% of the time. About uh, 10 to 15% or 10% of patients, maybe 15% will have um, a low TSH and 5% might actually have an elevated TSH. <clears throat> there are a lot of different explanations for why you can have a normal, put that in quotes, TSH, but uh, have evidence for hypothyroidism. And the first is it's a failure of the central axis to secrete enough TSH to stimulate normal T4 and T3 secretion. Studies have looked at areas under the curve throughout a 24-hour period and shown that patients with central hypothyroidism produce much less TSH. Uh, than the normal subject. And it's probably related to the fact that there's less TSH generation that stimulates uh, thyroid hormone production, so thyroid hormone levels fall uh, in the 24-hour period. Another thing that's been noted is that the diurnal variation, uh, which is nictohemeral in TSH secretion, is lost in these patients. Um, and it seems that the diurnal variation may be necessary to maintain the thyroid ready to respond to TSH. And the third factor is that it's been demonstrated that patients with central hypothyroidism fail to produce a biologically active TSH molecule. And this is because of post-translational modification and glycosylation, you get a molecule that's just not that effective. So when we immunologically measure TSH in the bloodstream, we don't know anything about the biological activity. So you must see a normal TSH, but uh, actually low or low normal T4 and T3 levels in these patients. And this is why if you really suspect hypothyroidism in a patient, you should check a TSH T4 and a T3. 
not just a TSH as a screen. If you do, you're going to miss the 5% of people who, are, who have hypothyroidism who have pituitary disease. Now, when it comes to T4 levels, they're usually low or low normal. Uh, most of the time, they're in the lower part of the normal range. When I was in my training at Hopkins many years ago, we used to talk about the constitutive output of thyroid hormone by the thyroid gland. Uh, and we saw a lot of people who would have T4 levels that are 0 0.4, 0 0.6, with a normal of 0 0.8 to 1.8. Uh, and we thought that that sort of was representing patients who had T, T4 release from the thyroid regardless of TSH secretion. But I've certainly seen my share of people who had undetectable T4 levels uh, in this uh, setting. Uh, T3 levels are often low or low normal, but they, as with most people with hypothyroidism, they tend to be preserved. And I think this is because you have enhanced clearance of T4 to T3, which of course, as you know, is the active uh, or business end of the molecule uh, after deiodination. Uh, and uh, T3 levels seem to be relatively preserved in patients with central hypothyroidism until their, their hypothyroidism uh, progresses to the point of uh, actually losing that uh, protective mechanism of converting more T4 to T3. So when you lose the substrate, you're ultimately going to see T3 levels fall as well. Now, when it comes to treatment, there, there's so much to talk about. Um, the first thing I'm going to talk about is the most important caveat. Uh, and the one thing that I see primary care physicians uh, uh, making uh, uh, judgment errors on more than anything else in patients with pituitary diseases, and that's that uh, they're maybe co-managing the patient with an, with an endocrinologist and you know the patient's on thyroid hormones so at the annual visit they'll check a TSH. The level will be low or low normal and they'll lower the dose of thyroxine. The patient comes back, the level's again low or low normal, they'll lower the dose again. Before you know it, the patient's off thyroxine, feeling horrible, myxedema, and still has a low TSH. And of course, the TSH is the problem, so you can't use that as a means to follow up patients with central hypothyroidism. You can't even use it. Let's say the patient has a normal TSH and comes back with a suppressed TSH. You can't change the dose because of that. It's just not useful. Most of the patients that I treat who have a, a low normal TSH or a slightly low TSH, when they go on thyroxine, their TSH level drops out. Uh, and their T4 and their T3 levels are perfectly normal and they have no symptoms of hyperthyroidism. And, and again, just don't use the TSH at all to follow the patient or to uh, make dose adjustments in those patients. And I think it's important to educate your patients to teach their primary physicians to not use the TSH. Um, I probably see 15 to 20 patients a year where this has happened despite educating patients. And I, I suspect it would be 100 patients a year if I didn't educate patients. So I think that it's worth teaching patients and then if you have the opportunity to speak to uh, medical groups teach those people uh, in those groups when you're talking about hypothyroidism this important caveat of treating central hypothyroidism in patients with pituitary disorders who take thyroxine or one of the other preparations next is that it's important to follow t4 i also follow t3 even though some don't recommend that but uh, there are plenty of people who on steroids or beta blockers or even just elderly have a conversion problem and they'll have a normal T4 and a low T3 and they feel hypothyroid. 
we'll talk more about it later, but in, in these patients, treating them with T3 does improve their sense of well-being. When it comes to the target T4 level, if you look at the normal T4 range and the normal distribution in normal people, it's fairly evenly distributed with the mean being in the middle. Uh, I've always cheated a little bit on the higher side of the middle of the normal range, aiming for a T4 level in my treated central hypothyroid patients. If the patient has ongoing symptoms of hypothyroidism, I'll certainly think about maybe starting T3 if they need it, or upping the uh, T4 dose a little bit more. However, some patients will have mild symptoms of hyperthyroidism with their T4 in the upper half of the normal range, maybe at that uh, uh, 75th percentile or so through the normal range. So in those patients, you have to lower the dose. So clearly you're looking at the biochemistry, but you're also talking to the patient to try to determine whether or not they require a dose adjustment. Otherwise, thyroxin dosage is pretty much the same as it is for patients with primary hypothyroidism. Children require 1.0 to 1.2 micrograms per pound of body weight. Most adults require 0.8 micrograms per pound of ideal body weight and the elderly 0.6 micrograms per pound of ideal body weight. I calculate ideal body weight uh, using the formula of for women it's 100 pounds plus 5 pounds for every inch over 5 feet. For uh, men it's 106 pounds plus 6 pounds for every inch over 5 feet. People who are overweight, I add 20% of the difference between their ideal body weight and their current weight. I use that then calculated weight to decide on the dose requirements. And this is all based on volume and distribution of the drug, of course. My approach, approach in most patients is to give full replacement rather than supplementation. Um, and I think that uh, you're not going to cause anybody harm that way, except for the elderly patients who might have heart disease. You want to start low and titrate up to a dose that normalizes their hormone levels without causing any cardiac symptoms or symptoms of hyperthyroidism. I usually check labs every eight weeks after dose adjustments and then annually once I have a patient on a stable dosage. And then in the interim, if a patient has any symptoms of hypo or hyperthyroidism, just to make sure that uh, therapy has been uh, appropriate and there have not been any changes. When it comes to adding T3 to the regimen, I usually consider that in patients who have low T3 levels, especially if the T4 is normal and they have symptoms of hypothyroidism. This is most commonly, as mentioned, going to be patients on steroids or beta blockers or the elderly and in some with renal disease and maybe hepatic disease where they have impaired uh, deiodinase activity. I usually use low doses. I'll start at five micrograms once or twice a day. Rarely, uh, maybe my maximum dose would be 15 micrograms every eight hours, but it's unusual to have to go that high to normalize T3 and improve a patient's sense of well-being. I think the half-life and volume distribution T3 should be given probably three times a day, but you can get by with once or twice in many of these patients. And I usually start low and then titrate the dose up. One of the things that I've noticed in my career is that if you're going to use T3, sometimes you'll have to lower the T4 dose maybe by uh, a notch or so. So a patient on 125 might go to 112 or, or even 100 micrograms just to, to, to allow you to use the T3 in that setting. Another thing that I think it's important to keep in mind 
when you're managing patients with uh, central hypothyroidism or even primary hypothyroidism is that a lot of uh, medical conditions and drugs that can affect um, thyroid hormone dosing. Uh, for example, some patients who have uh, nephrosis lose lose TBG and you may see a change in, uh, in the thyroxine dose requirement. Patients with protein losing enteropathy and who've... Uh, who have uh, large intestinal disease like uh, Crohn's or have had surgery for ulcerative colitis may also have a problem with their T4 dosing. Uh, the, in, in regards to drugs, um, the most common ones are the estrogens which elevate thyroxine binding globulin levels and uh, if you will mop up the um, T4 and and in a patient who doesn't have an intact hypothalamic pituitary unit, they're not going to regulate that, and you're going to have to to increase their dose of thyroxine. Same is true in pregnant women who have central hypothyroidism. Uh, conversely, androgens lower TBG levels, and some men who start testosterone, you have to lower their dose of thyroxine. Uh, somatostatin analogs can unmask central uh, hypothyroidism and require uh, a need to either increase thyroid hormone or start thyroid hormone in some patients. As mentioned, steroid medications, especially in uh, supraphysiologic doses, can inhibit the conversion of T4 to T3. Uh, narcotics uh, profoundly increase thyroxine binding globulin levels and the dose required to successfully treat a patient. So. You have to keep that in mind. And the other thing you need to recognize is that if a patient stops narcotics, you may have to lower their dose of thyroxine. And of course, we all know about aluminum-containing drugs such as antacids and sucralfate and some calcium and iron uh, medications. They can all bind thyroid hormone in the gut and prevent its absorption. Uh, and uh, you may or may not have to change your dose for patients taking calcium, but uh, certainly for some of the other medications, you might have to increase the uh, dose or decrease the dose depending on whether patients going on or coming off of these medications. Uh, cholestyramine, uh, which used to be used a lot to treat hypercholesterolemia, combined thyroid hormone and prevent its absorption. And of course, amiodarone has complex uh, effects on thyroid hormone secretion and metabolism. And you can see various and sundry changes in patients who have central hypothyroidism and take thyroid hormone therapy. Uh, dilantin and rifampin. I've seen a patient on rifampin in years, but certainly dilantin is used still. Uh, they have complex effects on the pituitary thyroid axis, and uh, a rare patient taking one of these medications may require an increase in the dose of thyroid hormone. The last thing I'll say about central hypothyroidism is keep in mind that these patients have a problem with the hypothalamic pituitary unit. The thyroid might otherwise be normal. I've seen several patients in my career, and a few in the recent year or so, who were doing perfectly well on uh, thyroid hormone replacement with stable dosages and then suddenly uh, developed hyperthyroidism. And I've seen patient, this several times in patients who have developed Graves' disease and they have a, a classic image of their thyroid gland on, on radionuclide studies showing they have Graves' disease with, with, with positive TSI antibody titers. I had a recent patient who developed a toxic adenoma in the setting of central hypothyroidism. And I had one patient who, as far as we could tell, looked like she had uh, thyroiditis, lymphocytic thyroiditis, where she had uh, an elevated thyroglobulin 
no uptake but profound hyperthyroidism so that thyroid gland even though it's not being stimulated sits there and contains thyroid hormone and something can happen to that uh, so you have to keep your uh, eyes and your ears open so to speak and be alert to changes in a patient's sense of well-being or situation and recognize when they're developing a run-of-the-mill thyroid condition in the setting of central hypothyroidism. There are a couple of other things I wanted to review. First, I have a couple of patients who have gastrointestinal problems, namely gastroparesis, diabetes in one case and idiopathic in another, and I treat them with uh, subcutaneous slash intramuscular thyroxine on a daily basis and they've both achieved good control of uh, thyroid hormone levels. So that's an approach that I'll often try. I have a smattering of patients who take uh, natural thyroid hormone preparations, specifically Armour Thyroid. It's not one of my favorite uh, drugs to use. I do have some people who seem to have allergy to some of the dyes in the synthetic preparations and will use that as a last resort and uh, most are well controlled. Some periodically have high T3 levels and hyperthyroidism. You tend to see more dose adjustment requirements, and I think this is not unexpected. Uh, the, the natural thyroid hormone preparations today are far better than the ones that were available when I was in my training 30 years ago. So th there's more stability, but there's still some instability in treatment. I'll use these preparations in patients if they fail other forms of therapies or don't tolerate them. If a patient comes to me and is doing very well on a natural thyroid hormone preparation, I'm satisfied with the control. I will continue treatment in those particular patients, but I don't usually subscribe to using this drug as a first-line therapy. I'm, I was trained in a, and am a firm believer that we use synthetic thyroxine and most people are going to tolerate that. I'd mentioned allergy to some of the dyes. It's usually the yellow dye that's in the 0.1 milligram tablet, and the other colors where that dye is present in the tablet are, are the ones that you're most likely to see the allergies. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening uh, to this podcast on central hypothyroidism. Uh, once again, Dr. Lewis Blevins, Pituitary World News. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This is Jorge Fascinetti, Pituitary World News co-founder and chief editor. We hope you are enjoying Dr. Blevins' pituitary series specifically for physicians. I also wanted to let you know that beginning in early 2022, Pituitary World News will go live with a weekly radio talk show. This one-and-a-half-hour show will feature roundtable discussions with experts and thought leaders in pituitary disease and related aspects of medicine. Please stay tuned for programming details and a formal announcement. The show will air weekly and will be available as a podcast after the live broadcast. We hope you will tune in and participate by calling in. Thank you for listening.